Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. Hey, Brendan. How are you doing? It's been a while. It has been a while. Uh, and, you know, in, in the past one, we've had a gap of a week or even two weeks. In, in some cases, uh, it's largely been your fault. And I've made that clarity behind the scenes. But I will I will own this. It's, you know, we haven't recorded in over. We didn't record anything in September. We recorded uh, two really great episodes at the end of August with um, Colin Murphy and Brian Scully. And hopefully people had a chance to listen those and then we uh i mean i guess you could look at it as like coasting on our laurels i mean the, the truth is is that i have just been really busy and haven't um had the time to to sit and record and it's i i, I feel badly to you ricky and to the people that are listening it's been nice that people have reached out and said like you know when's the next episode coming it's like i i both appreciate that and also makes me feel bad so i'm glad to at least be back and um hopefully getting you know, getting some content out and knock on wood, maybe getting into a, a better routine uh, in, in October than, than we were in September. Yeah. I mean, I won't, I won't definitely won't put all the blame on you. I think when I was uh, at my busiest, you, I could always count on you to, uh, to push me to find a little bit of time here and there to record. And um, with, with <laughs> without your, uh, your, your guiding hand here, I was kind of like, all right, well, we can, <laughs> we can, uh, cool it for a little bit, but it's good to be back. Definitely. I think we were joking earlier that uh, we got to get you one of those time Turner things that uh, Hermione Granger has in Harry Potter. Yeah. That's, that is very much what I need. I've needed that. Yeah. I, I feel like I've always needed that. And I need that especially, you know, at this time of, of my life, I would love one of those, but uh, we're going to make it happen in the muggle world, I suppose. Indeed. So we're here, finally back again. It is October. What day is it? October the ninth? Whoa! It has been quite some time. We're recording on a on a Saturday morning. This is this is one two things that one we're super old that like both. I, I texted Ricky at like eight thirty this morning, being like, "Hey, let's re- we have some time this point." And two, also indicative of like both of our schedules, we're like, "All right, the only time that we have to record is Saturday morning." <laughs> yeah. No. I don't like these reminders of getting older, but uh, this is definitely one where, yeah, you sent me a text at 8, 8, 30, and I responded within two seconds because I'd already been up for a solid two hours on a Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, it's good to be back. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, so, I mean, like fully transparent. Apparently, um, you know, one of the things in addition to not actually recording is that I personally haven't been in the news as much, you know, like when, when you and I, like we were talking about before, when we are in a rhythm and recording, we're constantly like reading the news, watching the news, like jotting things down, sending each other texts and emails being like, what do you think about this story? Or like, let's talk about this later. And uh, we haven't been doing that. And so we know like a lot of stuff happened in September and that there's a lot of stuff kind of on the horizon and we're going to get to all that stuff. Like we, we promised, like, you know, over the next month you know hopefully we can uh, have more like theme related or one issue related episodes because there's, there's a lot of important stuff happening in, in Boston and in the United States and in the world uh, but like I said fully transparently like we we don't feel like we, we 
you know, have the depth of, of information and knowledge to talk about those, those topics, like, you know, knowledgeably uh, at, at this point. So uh, we're going to talk about a couple things this week. Uh, we're going to start with the, the debt limit has been in the news over the past week. And so we're going to take a look at that first um, before, you know, transitioning into some of the smaller things that have maybe been percolating for a while, but we haven't really talked about. Um, but Ricky, before we get into all that, we have to remind people because people may have actually forgotten that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Uh, that's, you know, Cannon Hill, they've been building handcrafted high end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Um, Cannon with two ends, you can check them out on Instagram. Uh, you can visit them online at cannonhillwood.com. Uh, you know, it's just something to like, whether you're liberal or conservative or you know, libertarian or Republican or a Democrat, you know, you, you probably don't eat dinner on the ground. So go buy a table for those guys. You know, we have, we have the holiday season coming, Thanksgiving coming up, Ricky, you, you need a good quality table. If you're having people over your house, you, you want to have a table. You can say, look, handcrafted, high end, made here in Boston, supporters of the podcast. Indeed. Go buy a table. <laughs> go get a table. Seriously. It would help us out. <laughs> so um, a major news story that's that's kind of been circulating and it and it kind of is um, you know part and parcel with all of the different moving pieces on Capitol Hill right now with a few big infrastructure and social policy bills that are also out there um, is talk about the the debt limit. So I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about what that is, what that means, and kind of what we've seen recently. Um, so in most recent news, we had kind of an increase of the debt limit by about $500 million, um, which, uh, is going to get us, um, so originally before the, the debt limit was increased, we were getting close to a point where, um, it wasn't clear that the U S was going to be able to pay down its debt obligations or, you know, make, make their interest payments and all their payments, um, starting in October. Um, the increase of the debt limit allows us to borrow and make those payments. Uh, right now, the additional $500 million is expected to get us about two more months. So beginning of December, right around there. It's not an exact number because it kind of depends on how uh, the spending goes between now and then, but that's sort of the newest projection. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about it, why it's important um, and why it's kind of, I mean, it's not a new thing, this kind of squabbling over the debt limit. I sort of remember first hearing about this um, under the Obama presidency. Um, I think it was still his first term, probably 2010, 11. Yep. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think it would be unique, but we'll start with like, so what is the debt limit? Um, the U.S., because we're a, we borrow more than we receive in terms of tax revenues. We run a sort of a deficit budget. That's been true for basically the last 20, 20 years or so. I think the last time we were at a surplus was probably under Clinton, maybe. Yep. Um, yeah. So, you know, following some very expensive wars and some, uh, obviously the recession in 2007 and eight, we really expanded the amount of money that government, um, was spending and that was far, and we were doing so really without um, raising taxes in an equal kind of an offsetting manner. So that is not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of economists will agree that um, 
you know, keeping a certain amount of debt on the government's balance sheet is probably healthy for an economy. We've seen a lot of the benefits of that in terms of sustained growth um, over the last 15 years. The flip side, of course, that everybody tends to worry about um, is inflation. Um, we hadn't really experienced a ton of that in the past. It looks like there are some signals that things may change a little bit here. I was right. I've been saying this for people that have been listening. I've been warning about this. <laughs> well, I don't, I maybe too, I think it still may be a little too early to pat yourself on the back, but there are certainly signs and some of them are uh, genuine. Some of them are still kind of like lingering effects of, of COVID and how uh, we've had just like disruptions to how we operated um, which are making supplies tighter. And of course, if there's more money and fewer supplies, you're going to see prices rise, um, or at least that's the economic theory behind it. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that is interesting is that in this particular debt limit crisis, you've got a lot of Republicans pointing the finger um, at Democrats saying, you know, talking about how they're kind of recklessly spending dollars and um, that a lot of this debt crisis is, you know, falls at the feet of Democrats. There was, you know, a, a big period of time over the last month or so where Republicans were essentially saying, we're going to use the, the filibuster to not allow you to pass a debt limit increase. Um, yeah, I'm curious, curious to your thoughts on that. Curious to how you assess who is sort of responsible and, you know, what, what is kind of responsible for government to do in these situations um, where, you know, there's a huge, you know, Janet Yellen and other folks were really starting to like uh, make some noise about, hey, if we don't get this thing sorted out, there could be some serious, serious repercussions because the United States government paying their debts on time is like the, that's the gold standard on which a lot of business decisions are made. Like you take that as a given and you can sort of work from there. If, if you can't do that, all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about major financial sort of cascading implications of, of how things would work if, if we don't fund um, the government. Yeah, I mean, the issue to me is just it's a systemic issue that then rears its ugly head when it comes when the deadline is approaching and then everyone's kind of jockeying for a political position. And, you know, we make these short term deals, like you said, like this will take us through December. And that's good in the sense that it buys, you know, Congress a couple more months and that the United States is not going to default on its debts next week. Uh, which is great. But then like, we're going to have more jockeying come December and whatever, like the deal, like the deal at next deal is made is probably going to be for like a year. And like, we're going to have to deal with this again in a year with you know potentially different people in office. So if everyone wants to kick the can down the road, the problem is really is that the, there are two things you can do to run a more balanced budget. And everyone knows this. And this is from like a small business or to like, to, you know, the, the United States government is that you either need to cut spending or raise more revenue. And so for the United States government, raising revenue is like increasing taxes and cutting spending is like cutting programs. And no one wants to do that, right? Like those are just unpopular moves for politicians. And so like, no, like it's, it's very frustrating to me because like everyone knows this debt isn't, 
or maybe I guess I want to say everyone knows, I don't believe that this debt is sustainable. So, like, so the current US, United States deficit uh, um, debt is, is approaching $29 trillion. Uh, it's been the worst presidents in terms of, of debt increase. I think three of the, the four worst were George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, and uh, Donald Trump. And so it's like, it's not, it's not getting any better. And the like, problem is, you know, the GOP gets in, in charge and they say like, we, we want to cut taxes. And we're like, great. Everyone pats themselves on their back. Like, oh, like this is great for the middle class. And, and then, you know, the, the Democrats get in charge and they want to like increase spending to increase programs. Right. And everyone pats themselves on their back. And like, oh, this is great for like some, some like the lower income folks. Right. And all of those things can be true, but like, you can't just do what's like favorable, like all of the time, like you, theoretically, you have to make tough decisions. And that's theoretically, again, like while we're electing these people is to make difficult decisions. Like I go back, like President Truman had that sign on his desk, like the buck stops here. It feels like no, the buck doesn't stop anywhere ever anymore. And like, that's, that's very frustrating to me. So you brought up like the last time we had a, a balanced budget. We had it for four years in a row from 98 to 2001 and both parties to deserve credit for it. So it's Clinton, the Clinton administration was in charge in, in the executive branch, but Republicans controlled both the, the House and the Senate. So like, there was like true kind of bipartisan, like wrangling in agreements. And like, this is hard work. We said that a million times to like get to kind of to do a budget, right? There's a lot of compromise that has to be made along the way. So from 98 to 2001, we had it. Um, from 1970 to 1998, we didn't have it. And from 2001 to the present day, we haven't had it. And it's actually like we're running just huge deficits at this point. And there are reasons for that. As you said, like 2000, I mean, 2000 with, with the September 11th attacks and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, like those costs, you know, in, incredible amounts of money. And like, that's, you, you had to pay for those if, if you wanted to fight those wars. And, you know, that was under obviously the Bush administration, the Obama administration inherited this great recession where like they had to pump more money into the economy. And like they ran huge deficits to do that. And so like, it's, it's some of that is kind of outside the control of, of presidential administrations, but it's also like you sign up knowing that like the unexpected is, is going to happen during your presidency. Like you just like you, that's what happens. You can't predict what's going to happen in a year or four years. And so I guess uh, without even really touching the current negotiations, I'm frustrated from a bigger picture perspective that no, no one in either party, when either party is in charge, seems to want to say that like, this has to be a priority. And Ricky, we've said this a million times, like maybe it just is that everyone kind of believes what you've said before of like the debt doesn't matter. Like we can, we can run off huge deficits every single year and we can keep borrowing more and more money and like, you know, 29 trillion, 39 trillion, 49 trillion, who cares? It's never going to come due. Again, that's always been hard for me to buy, but I guess maybe I get, I guess that's what it is. Like in, uh, yeah, I mean, I think like systemic, like it's, I just like shake my head when we get to a point like this week where it's like, we're teetering on the edge of, of a country not being able to pay its debts. And it's like, that's like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think all of those are good points. I think it does bear mentioning or reminding that, as you mentioned, we've been here before. So part of it, well, yeah, so the the limit is important because it it sets the amount that the United States is able to continue to carry on its its balance sheet um but that we constantly that we have been here multiple times before and it's less about addressing whatever the cause of the issue is it's more about all right i have leverage now because you know you need this to happen otherwise sort of the country shuts down the world shuts down like how do we how do i use that leverage to sort of 
needle you on other things. I don't want you doing this in the infrastructure bill, or I don't like that part of social policy. And so you're going to, if you need my vote to do this, I'm going to make sure that I get something in return on the other side. I think that that, that is like one aspect of it that like, why exactly do we are, is, is that piece of policy allowed to be whatever the, the term is like tossed around like the political football of the day. Um, but then, then comes the other question about debt and like sustainable debt. And so, right. The, the biggest problem with governments carrying debt, aside from the fact that at some point somebody may be like, you know, we're, we're not extending your line of credit any further. You just can't borrow this more money. And we do have a lot of foreign holders of American debt. And that's how, you know, the U S economy debt funds is it sells bonds and treasury bonds and things like that, which really anybody can buy. So, um, and, and many people have, that's kind of like a gold standard in terms of like a safe investment is a U.S. Um, treasury bond. So <clears throat> that is definitely an issue in that it could come a day that we really can't raise debt anymore. But the bigger thing that people point to is inflation. And we just haven't seen any signs of inflation over the past 20 years. I would you know, personally, I think in large part because of our just ability to extract resources and create products that we need um, at scales that we've never seen before. So while there's more money in the economy in in large part due to debt spending, we've also just seen no price pressure because we've just sort of been able to create our way um, out of those kinds of things. Now with kind of the pandemic and we've had supply chains being disrupted from fuel to, you know, component parts and computer chips and um, all sorts of different things. All of a sudden you're seeing those supplies tighten up, but all this money is still floating around the economy. And, and that tends to have an inflationary pressure. But the question is, is that like, is that short lived or is that something that we're going to work our way out of? But I, I think, I think you're absolutely right in terms of like, how do we address this problem? And I guess the question for you is, is our American system actually set up to address this problem? Because nobody is going to be able to run on a campaign that like, Hey, I'm going to go or nobody today. I I'd say that used to be something that, that more people were um, in favor of, but no one's going to say that I'm going to go to Washington to balance the budget. Um, that seems like a losing campaign strategy. Yeah, you're right. Like no, no one's going to run on that. I think in addition to the inflationary worries that we have and we may or may not be seeing is that you know, as the debt continues to escalate, like more and more of the budget is taken over by like paying these debt obligations and like paying the interest on this debt. And so like that's money that is being taken from taxpayers and, and now being used to pay Japan and pay China and pay these other like foreign governments that, you know, finance our debt. And that's okay because like, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're using that money that we're borrowing to provide services. But like, if, if we really think about it, like a lot of the money that like our taxpayers were, were spending right now, the government is spending our money is to finance this debt that we keep borrowing. It's like you're robbing Peter to pay Paul type thing. And that, that that's bothersome to me because if, if the debt continues to increase at the rate it's increasing and, Certainly it did hugely under Trump and it seems to be going like going to be increasing like rapidly under Biden as well. Uh, 
that that seems to be that there's just there's less money to go around to other things, right? And if you want to kind of continue to, to expand some some of these social programs or continue to run social programs that maybe look not super stable in in the future, like you're going to have to have money. And as more and more of our money gets gets spent on like financing the debt, I think that that's a real worry for me. Um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting, like how issues kind of come and go in terms of the public consciousness I do feel like when I was younger and like just first starting like to pay attention to politics I heard this more like maybe particularly in the 90s but also um, certainly the Republicans under like uh, Obama were pushing back on this like on on the spending limit you know a decade ago I it certainly turned out to be quite hypocritical when you know Trump ran huge deficits as as well uh, and someone called them like seasonal deficit hawks, which I think is a, a fair term, right? Uh, it, but it's like, it's 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 a tool of like the opposition party, the minority party, right? Is to say like, look, look at this government, like this government spending too much, right? And then if we were in power, we would do something different. And then as soon as they get in power, like no one wants to make those unpopular decisions because it's hard to stay in power that way. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess like I'm always trying to be hopeful and saying that like you you would think that enough people would recognize that, balancing budgets is like an important thing that like Larry, every business has to do that if, if you are if you work for a business if you own a business like you this just that's like the fundamental bedrock principle of, of running a business is you can't just like borrow 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 all of the time and you know you would hope that a message such as that with, with like a real plan to do that of how like how and who we're going to raise taxes on and and, and where and how we're going to cut spending like I, I would hope that that message would still resonate with enough of the, the the voters to potentially to be successful. But I mean, maybe that's just pie in the sky thinking. You're, I think you're right. Like realistically, that doesn't seem likely. I mean, I, we haven't seen any major candidate really raise that as a central issue of their campaign in the last several election cycles. So it doesn't seem to be something that's like uh, on the forefront of a lot of candidates' minds. Who do you think this kind of, um, I don't know, squabbling is the right word, but like this sort of stalemating over debt benefits. I think in the, in the past, it was, like you said, before sort of the, the seasonal deficit hawk moniker kind of came into the public consciousness. It had always been Republicans that were pointing towards Democrats for being overly sort of generous in the benefits without real plans to pay for them. And it, you know, quite frankly, the progressive sort of philosophy around government spending is that like, first things first, meet the needs of the people, the deficit or, you know, whatever debt that we need to do to get there, you know, we'll figure out by taxing the rich eventually, right? Like that's, that's more carrying debt is not so much of a problem for progressives because they sort of just say, you know, that, that is what it is, given the amount of wealth in the country, we should be able to manage this debt. And if not, we need to tax a certain portion of the population to, to fund it. Um, but I'm curious because it, it feels like a lo- what Republicans are pointing to today is a lot of future spending, but the debt limit is actually related to decisions that had already been made, right? The Trump tax cuts, uh, Obama's additional sort of uh, recession injection of, of cash into major companies, like a lot of that is water under the bridge, so to speak. And that's what the debt limit is meant to address. But I, just like 
I think that a lot of that what is washed over in the news and you hear on the one hand, Biden's proposing a three and a half trillion dollar bill. And on the other hand, you know, Republicans are saying, well, we're not going to raise the debt limit so that you can make more financially unsound decisions. Yeah. And in that sense, I, I think this is generally a, a good issue for Republicans right now. Um, and I think that's also, like I said earlier, probably true for the minority party in general, the one that's like not actually having to make all of these like harder decisions. Uh, you can just kind of like scream and cry and stamp your feet and point your finger and say like, look what they're doing. Um, to your point of like raising the debt limit is to finance existing obligations. It has very little to do with you know what the Biden administration has done in the last 10 months. Uh, with that said, like you'll, you're right. Like that's what's in the news right now is the Democrats are voting to raise the debt ceiling. And the Democrats are also trying to ram through a three and a half trillion dollar bill. And in addition to another trillion dollar bill, in addition to the other trillion dollars they spent back in March, right? Like it, it's all of those things are all are true. So I, I was just like going to say that I think like the narrative is, is good for Republicans in the sense that they can sit back and say, Hey, if you're going to raise the debt limit, you're going to do it on your own. And then if you're going to pass, if you want to pass on these things, you're going to do it on your own. And that's something where I think for a lot of Americans, like they look at that and they're kind of like, this seems excessive. And if you're looking for like the more, you know, the more moderate people, if we're looking for, you know, in 2022, the midterms, like this, the swing voters, I think this is an issue that could play well uh, for Republicans. All right. So I, I want to touch on maybe one more thing before we leave this where it is. And I think um, over the next coming months, it will, it, I mean, certainly by December, it will rear its head again. But um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Biden, um, in, in the, over the past couple of weeks, when Republicans were sort of threatening not to allow the debt limit to be increased, had suggested this may be an opportunity to to get rid of the filibuster in order to do this. That seems for Democrats, maybe like the most, that might have been the most winning opportunity to do something like that. Like, hey, we're looking at like a global economic collapse. If we don't do this, Republicans are standing in the way and this is our time to to make that decision. I wonder, A, would it have been justified? Do you think it would have been justified under that circumstance? Or B, do you think that's a big reason that McConnell and 12 other Republicans decided, you know what, this maybe is not the sword to die on today? Yeah, I'll tackle B first, because you, you said that right. And I, I couldn't agree more is that Biden has steadfastly from his campaign to the beginning of his term, even when things have been difficult, and even when Republicans are throwing up huge obstacles in the in the face of things that like huge priorities for the Biden administration, Biden has said, I don't want to eliminate the filibuster. And, and that's been really important for, for like the leader to come out and say that and to support the mansions and the cinemas of the world so that they're not just in a total island by themselves. And uh, and for him to kind of say like, well, at this point, like we don't, we're not, the Republicans aren't giving us a choice. Like we're going to have to eliminate it just so the United States can pay its debts. Uh, yeah, I think that drove McConnell in, in the narrative you know, the kind of meta narrative is that like McConnell folded, he caved, you know, that's certainly what Trump is saying. That's what Elizabeth Warren is saying is that, look, look, McConnell caved, but you know, McConnell for all his many flaws, right? Like I, you know, wants is, is kind of a a Senate based, like rules based, tradition based kind of uh, 
you know, figure in the Senate and wants to preserve the filibuster pretty much at all costs. Like, and uh, I think the McConnell cinema mansion, like a little Alliance is maybe like one, probably the most important one going in the Senate right now. Like those are the ones that are still holding things together from like the far right and far left, you know, uh, aspects of, of those two caucuses. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's for sure why McConnell caved. And I think that's an interesting tool for Democrats going forward, just threatened to like eliminate the filibuster. And if McConnell thinks that's like a, a real possibility, I do think he'll, you know, quote unquote cave. I'm, I'm glad he did because I do agree with, with him, with Biden, generally with cinema, with Manchin, that the filibuster is still like a really important tool to have. I don't want to get rid of it. I think it's led to nastiness in terms of like both times when Harry Reid did it, when McConnell did it. Um, for nomination, Supreme Court justices. So yeah, I'm glad it didn't happen. To your like question A, like would this have been a good opportunity for Democrats to do it? I think it absolutely would have been. Uh, I still, I'm glad that they didn't. But if there was ever a situation where you were going to like kind of ramp something through paying U.S. debt obligations that were incurred under you know previous, including Republican administrations, I think you have a good narrative there. I think it's going to be a lot harder to try to eliminate that to push through a three and a half trillion dollar like bill to like that has all sorts of other things in it i think that's a bad look and not something that uh i would do if i were a democratic leadership so that's an interesting point like it was this a missed opportunity i'm glad it didn't happen but i'm sure this was discussed yeah it it definitely had had to have been thrown around all right well we'll we'll leave this this topic here and perhaps we'll pick it up again um, in a month or so when it is destined to, uh, to rear its ugly head. Um, Yep. With that, maybe we'll take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we'll take a look at some of the other things that have been uh, percolating in the news recently. I said, I'm on it, honest, it's on its way. You're gonna get your money in a couple of days. Okay. All right, so for another topic this uh, this morning here <laughs> that I wanted to talk about, uh, stepping away from politics a little bit, a story that that pr- I think started to come out about two years ago. So the the Varsity Blues case, basically the the undercover sting investigation that revealed um, kind of how the rich and powerful pay uh, pay their way in. Um, or I guess find back doors into prestigious universities for their children using like fake athletic scholarships and other uh, and paying people to take their tests for them and things like that to get their kids into schools like USC and um, certainly not, not, uh, not reserved for that school alone, but that was, that was one that was in the news and there were several parents that were kind of implicated in this scandal and it's kind of coming back to the fore as, uh, as some of those cases are concluding and there have been a few convictions. Um, but I'm curious, you know, as someone who is in education, how you have uh, been following the story or how you've sort of perceived um, the story. Cause I think it's one of those rare things that there's really not much controversy in from like the public's perspective um, of like, 
you know, who's good and who's bad in this, in this story, which is kind of rare for today with almost anything um, that comes out, you know, we typically have like, even if you would, you would think that there's kind of a genuine good guy and bad guy in, in a lot of our, in a lot of sort of the public discourse, we end up with issues where, some people are are kind of defending the defendants and obviously other people are, are feeling a, a separate way. But I think in this case, there hasn't been a ton of like public outcry that, oh, these people are, these poor people are being persecuted. So I'm, I'm curious as to why you think that is and like kind of what you think about the issue. Oh, oh <laughs> I am going to take the side of these people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, man, when this whole thing came out. And so just to kind of expand on what Ricky was saying is that like, these were some, there were some pretty famous people like Aunt Becky from Full House was maybe the most famous, but like there were a couple actors and actresses from like Hollywood area. And certainly here in Boston, it was happening with like the Harvard, like fencing program or whatever. They've had, like, uh, and and so like a lot of those, the people were being tried at the Mulkey courthouse down, down the seaport here in Boston. So like, that was, that was interesting for a little bit. Um, I don't know, like when it all came out, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, yeah, that's nothing that I didn't expect to be happening that like rich people were like paying coaches and admissions directors to get their kids into colleges like, and quite frankly, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, Like, look at all of the ways that that colleges decide who gets to come and, and, you know, it's it's people that make donations and and legacies and athletes and, you know, uh, and you know people of different races and ethnicities and genders and um, people of really high SAT scores and people that did really well in, in high school like it's like all of those things and maybe like those last things that I mentioned people are like well you know it should just be about how you did in high school or you know like or if you're like a real talented athlete or musician to me it's just like there are a bunch of different reasons particularly for like you know private universities if they want to make up their classes they should really be able to make up their classes however they damn well please uh i have no problem with people using like their wealth and influence to buy their kids spots at these institutions like if the institutions want to accept that money like i again I, I have no problem with that and it doesn't that doesn't shock me at all it's like a, someone that grew up middle class and is still probably like middle class now like that like my family never had the ability to do that and i didn't expect expect them to do that i i wouldn't do it for for my children if if i ever even had the ability to which i doubt that i will but like uh yeah, I guess like that. I I didn't think this was like a huge scandal. I mean, it was scandalous in the fact that like it all came to light and there were a lot of like rich and famous people that people knew involved. But yeah, I wasn't I wasn't bothered by it. So so that's interesting because I think I mean, as somebody who has kind of looked at college admissions as a kind of a microcosm for how people perceive America, right? That there is this idea of like the grand meritocracy and like, you just pick yourself up from your bootstraps, you work hard and whatever things will work out for you. And this is a blatant example of how the stacks, the cards are stacked against you. And you can, you know, say whatever you want about how, you know, maybe affirmative action has a similar, like, you know, there's a little bit of like a lottery aspect to that, but I don't think that that's the same. I don't think you could say that that is really similar at all. We're talking about like just a strict like pay for play backdoor into some of the hardest universities to get into. And I think I think 
definitely part of what you're saying is true that these are private universities. They're, they're not non-for-profits. They're there to raise money and they can do so however they want. And that's like the sort of the front door, how people with outsized wealth get into these universities. And, you know, what we saw in this case is all of a sudden there were coaches and um, other, you know, smaller individuals taking a cut on their way in. And you can argue like, potentially that in and of itself is not that big of a deal when we allow for so-and-so to put his name on a building and that gets his son a spot too. And, you know, that's, everybody says that that's perfectly fine. I think that those, that maybe the morality of what they did is not as much in question, but I think it's still a pretty big indictment of the philosophy that all you have to do is kind of work hard and you you're able to, to do these things when it is clear that other people who don't have to work as hard are also able to do these things. So, so what, you know, what are we talking about? It's not really a meritocracy then. Fine. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Like, I mean, I like, it's like the same, like if you start off by saying like, this is like a microcosm of the United States. Yeah. I don't disagree with you that it is still a meritocracy in a large part of it, but that, there are the, the the system stacked in favor of certain people with you know wealth and privilege and money yeah i mean yeah i, I guess I, I agree with that completely but why is that not a problem i, mean, I just like i i am fine kind of accepting that as like a a, a feature of the system like i don't necessarily even know that it's a, a bug in the system like, i think ultimately we should be working to make sure like more in a diverse set of people from different, uh, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds and racial and ethnic and um, gender backgrounds, like have opportunities to potentially attend these schools. And again, like this really, this idea that these schools are like the end all be all for certain things, I think is a problem in and of itself. But, uh, you know, I think we want to increase more opportunities that, you know, people have to be successful and be quality candidates at these schools. Uh, but that people like with wealth and, and privilege are going to have also doors open to them that other people don't. And I don't know, I, I guess maybe that's me being more of a, a realist. I, I don't, I don't see really any way around it. I think the the issue is like painting it as a, a pure meritocracy when we know it isn't. And it's like, you know, if there are a million reasons where I, I might have a higher SAT score or better grades that I didn't get into Harvard over this person that did because she was better at playing the flute or he was better at playing football or his parents had more money. Like they're all like, I don't know. It's like, to me, it's like this, it would be useless to, to scream and cry about those things. Like you can, there are all different reasons that people get accepted to colleges or get certain jobs and that's okay with me. I, this is rather shocking to me because as a, as a rules guy, such as such that you are, I would, I would think like, even if, okay, we accept that, you know, if you have unlimited money, it's, it's basically known that, Hey, if you want to go buy a building on a university campus, spend $20 million, of course, when your son or daughter goes to put in their application for admission, you get, they get put into a special pile, right? Like their so-and-so's family name is on a building, right? We know that, as kind of a standard practice. And I think everybody accepts that, but this, what happened here was completely sort of behind the scenes, right? Something that is only available to people who know people. And there's something, I don't know, to me, there's something to be said about how, like, even 
things that are quote unquote un or not quote unquote, but I guess like the perception of those things being unfair is potentially still acceptable, even if it's all within kind of an open and transparent rule book. Here we have people who have a lot of money, but maybe not that much money, you know, so that they're not buying buildings, but they can spend an extra four or $500,000 to buy some SAT scores. Like this is all of a sudden it feels a little bit, I don't know, cheaper. I don't, I'm not sure what the word is. Yeah, I guess to me that I don't see the huge difference between the person that's going to spend 20 mil to put their name on a building and a person that's going to donate 500,000 to, you know, buy a new squash court. Uh, like, I mean, like yeah, there are different levels of wealth, but to me, like if, if we really want to boil down and force yourself, Ricky, me force you to be like a purist of your things is that like, we shouldn't even allow people with you know money to buy buildings to, to, to treat their kids any differently. And maybe you say, yeah, we shouldn't, but you also kind of said, well, we kind of accept that as like the status quo, like the standard operating procedure. And this was like beyond the standard operating procedure to me, like they don't six and one half dozen, the other people kind of doing the same things. People with money are using their you know wealth and privilege to, to get their children uh, in, into these schools into like theoretically higher places in society. Uh, I, I just don't see much of a difference between those things. Wow. This is a first on record. I think Brendan Kelly is in favor of cheating to get into a better college. <laughs> I said it. He didn't. Yeah, whatever. I mean, if you're, if you're, I don't, I'm not. If your students. <laughs> yeah. I will say we. We, we touched on something that's interesting and something that I do want to talk about uh, in a coming episode where we know that uh, Harvard was was sued um, in terms of their admissions policies, arguing that uh, Harvard was discriminating chiefly against Asian students. Uh, and that case is was brought up to the Supreme Court. It got kind of it's being kicked around. There's a, some more kind of behind the scenes stuff that has to be done. But the Supreme Court theoretically will ha- hear that case in the next you know, year or so. Uh, and that's a really interesting topic as well. And something that maybe we'll revisit this conversation later because, uh, you know, college admission policies uh, is interest. They're interesting for a lot of reasons. But one of the chief reasons is that this has been uh, a place where like civil rights you know, issues have, uh, you know, back in, in the 60s and, and 70s and, and later with some um, gender things and the, the affirmative action policies and all, all of these sorts of issues, they're often litigated at the college level. Uh, and this, this Harvard case is particularly interesting. So let's come back to like college admissions in, in a upcoming episode and, and dive into this a little bit more. All right. Yeah. Anything else you were, uh, that's been, uh, you've been ruminating on this, these past couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, like, again, we're not going to touch on yet that we've been kind of like paying attention to. I, I will say the the January 6th commission. So January 6th, I think probably most people know was the day that we had the the protest slash riot, the storming of, of the Capitol. Uh, and there have been there's been a ton of fallout from that, obviously, uh, in like lots of arrests that have been taking place around the country and, and trials and uh, you know plea deals, all, all those sorts of things. Uh, but there was also, you know, some debate within Congress of like, are we going to, is Congress going to set up a commission to investigate what actually happened and, and try to get to the bottom of it? Besides just like the, you know, these individual citizens that are going to be prosecuted for criminal actions. Uh, and ultimately, like, they couldn't really agree on on how to do it in the Senate and the House decided they were going to do it themselves. 
and over the summer, so um, Speaker Pelosi started to put together uh, like the, the committee to do it. She originally nominated, I believe, seven Democrats and Liz Cheney, who we certainly devoted some some airtime to. And we know that she's at this point a persona non grata within the Republican House delegation that was you know, stripped of her post. But anyway, so it's it's there's a 15 member commission. She originally appointed seven Democrats and Liz Cheney and, to, and then. Um, the the minority leader um, Kevin McCarthy had to nominate uh, seven Republicans, and he nominated uh, Jim Jordan and a couple other Republicans who had voted against certifying the election. And Pelosi was pretty much like, "I'm not I'm not putting those people on on this this committee." Uh, so she also nominated uh, or put on Adam Kinzinger, who is a representative from Illinois, who's uh, who also um, voted he voted to certify the election. He voted for president Trump's impeachment after this and has been like an outspoken kind of similar Liz Cheney model. Um, so that commission, they issued a bunch of subpoenas, which means like that people would have to come and testify before Congress. And they also subpoenaed a bunch of records from the Trump administration from like the, the events leading up to that day. Uh, and so a couple of things came out this week that I saw that I thought were kind of interesting. One the Biden administration had the opportunity to invoke executive privilege to protect those documents. Now, the first reaction might be like, of course, they're not going to do that because, you know, Trump is a bitter enemy of, of Biden's, of, of Democrats in general, right? And so anytime you can give over documents that would potentially incriminate people um, in, the, in the Trump administration, Trump inner circle, you should do that. With that said, there is a kind of a more... You know, like rules based and rules based isn't the right word, but uh, like administrative based uh, reason why you wouldn't is that like there's an argument to be made that presidents don't want you know presidents that uh, come after them yeah. to all of a sudden be opening up the doors to documents to confidential documents that ha- happened under their administrations. And so there's been a history of Supreme Court rulings where presidents have invoked executive privilege to protect previous presidents, even if they've disagreed with them, because, hey, we don't want to establish this precedent of as soon as this president's out, I'm opening up all of all of the documents to him or her in the future. And they're like secret documents and executive privilege. Now, let's put it all out there. And so it it was, I I imagine, like an actual legitimate debate within the Biden administration. Um, But they, they decided that they were not going to uh, invoke executive privilege here to protect those documents, which means that I'm sure Trump's lawyers will um, will protest and will, will sue and challenge this in court. And so we'll see what happens with that. But provided they don't win on that, is that the Biden administration is going to open up access to hundreds of thousands of documents, maybe millions of documents of from the Trump administration. And that's significant legally um, and certainly will be significant in the investigation to see really who knew what. And then the only other thing is that some of the subpoenas, like personal subpoenas, like um, Steve Bannon was subpoenaed and Mark Meadows and uh, a bunch of other like kind of high ranking officials. And that'll be really interesting because if they're come, if, if they answer the subpoena, they'll have to come and theoretically testify under oath in terms of what they knew, what the president knew going into that day. And if they don't come, they can face like, you know, criminal contempt you know, proceedings from the house uh, that has to go through a house vote. And that would be fascinating too. you know, the Republicans allow members of their own party to just like defy the Senate without without consequence i mean def- defy the house with the house rules without consequence so whatever there was just kind of a lot of interesting things is that the committees uh i believe was formed in like july uh and they've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes in terms of trying to gather information gather documents issue subpoenas and now it's all kind of coming due and we'll see in the kind of coming weeks and months you know what happens with that but just something to keep an eye on i thought was interesting to at least mention 
Yeah, no, definitely worth um, keeping tabs on. It's, it's interesting now as I get older and, you know, juggle a lot of responsibilities in my own workplace to think about congressmen and women as they're kind of juggling and, uh, and negotiating on massive policy bills that they also have, like, you know, that, that small class that they're taking for one credit that's just lingering in the background, they still got to make progress on it. Like, I wonder, I wonder if some of this stuff happens, like, you know, two weeks or, you know, a week or a night before they have to to make some press release about the progress that they made on this commission. If they're like, oh crap, I got to cram for this and put something down on paper. Cause it's something that just completely, I mean, I think it's important work um, just to get to the bottom of this really. I think, I think everyone would be better served to really understand what happened. Um, but given all the other things that are going on, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing to see some of this move forward as it's really felt like a, a waning priority. Well, yeah. And, and you and I were kind of talking about this, that it seems, you know, this, this was nine months ago, really. It's almost nine months ago to the day. And it seems almost like another lifetime ago. Um, but I think it's important not to forget about that day and to continue to hold people, whether individuals or people with like, uh, you know, private citizens or you know, people that working within the government at that day, if, if they contributed to that, like you say, get to the bottom of it. Like it's not, that was a, a horrifying day. And, you know, it, immediately other things come along that, that take the headlines and, and take precedence. But this is, like I said, I'm, I'm very supportive of a commission trying to get to the bottom of it. I wish it was more bipartisan, but Republicans didn't really allow that to happen. So that's on them. If it's, if the refinings are, potentially biased indeed well maybe we'll leave our uh, first episode back in a month there um easing back into it i think we know that there's a lot uh a lot of other things that we could have talked about and things that we're looking forward to talking about especially this supreme court docket and um some of the challenges to roe v wade that we've seen recently um of course following along with the infrastructure bill, climate change, and, and additional social social sort of safety net spending that we're considering here or that is being considered and being actively negotiated. So we've got uh, we've got a lot to go on these next couple of months. So looking forward to to diving into it. Yeah. It's good to be back. And to everyone that reached out and was like wondering where the next episode was or you know wondering um, if Brendan that, that listens or something. Yeah, that seems to be a consensus for people in my life these days. Uh, we we appreciate you continuing to listen. We hope you come, you know, that obviously if you've gotten to this point, like we're preaching to the choir at this point, but we hope you continue to to listen and to reach out with us with thoughts, with ideas, with um, comments, with, and then, you know, continue to let other people know that, you know, we're, we're still kicking over here. <laughs> Till next time, buddy. See ya. Good to talk to you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began So morning's you away, 
morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands and folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz